All right, so this is session 11 uh, in our church history seminar. Um, we have only have two more left after this, so hope you've enjoyed it. It's been educational for me uh, in helping prep everything. Um, let's pray before we get started. Lord God, we're grateful for this morning getting to come and think about the history of your church and to think about especially missions um, and the work that you did to, um, to send people all over this world who could go out and bring your gospel to those who, who needed to hear it, those who hadn't heard it, um, to make Bibles in languages that um, didn't have Bibles. And we thank you for their work, and we pray that this morning as we think about these missionaries that we will be inspired um, towards mission work, whether it be in supporting missionaries or maybe even becoming missionaries. Um, may we bring you glory um, in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for the past uh, really two classes, we've been looking at, if you remember two classes ago, we looked at kind of Baptist origins, the origins of Baptist churches, uh, specifically in 17th century England. Um, but then we also looked last week at kind of the Enlightenment and how um, this new um, spirit of the Holy Spirit uh, kind of transformed the Americas um, and the Great Awakening happened. Um, and we see that transforming churches, transforming, and, and really kind of bolstering the Christian uh, representation here in the U.S. But you may notice that we're kind of like narrowing our focus as we go, right? And so we, I kind of mentioned this before, but if you think about church history, it's really kind of like a tree, and you have kind of at the base, at the root, at the trunk, uh, there's Jesus, the apostles, right? And they, they, there's the church starting. And then it kind of goes, and eventually we get to this place where we learned you know, way back uh, in like 300s, 400s range, we get this split, right, where we get uh, kind of the eastern-western divide. And so we get the eastern church, but then also branches off into like the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and et cetera. Then we have this kind of um, western branch that's going up, and it kind of divides, and we end up getting the Roman Catholic and the Protestant branches, right? And then the Protestant branch branches off a whole bunch again. And each kind of branch we've taken, we've kind of had to choose a, 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 a branch to follow, right? We, we can't cover everything in a 12-session 12, 12 seminar. So we're kind of like picking and tracing the trail to get to, ultimately, kind of the closest thing to the tradition that, that made this church be. Um, and we would say that that kind of closely aligns with the Baptist tradition. And so we, if we look at us doctrinally, um, kind of our goals as a church and what we're, you know, doing evangelistically or mission-wise or community-wise or um, kind of even our church setup, our polity, our, our politics, politics is not the right word, our, our, our church government structure, um, not, not church politics, let's not do that at all. Um, our church government structure, it's, it's pretty close to the Baptist kind of origins. So we're kind of tracing that and we're kind of calling on that as, as, as part of our history. So this week we're going to specifically be looking at three pioneers of what we call modern missionary history, um, particularly ones within the Baptist realm, within the world of, of Baptist uh, missionaries. And those three are William Carey, Adoniram Judson, and Lottie Moon. I mean, as we do this, uh, as we're looking at these guys, I hope that you'll, you'll kind of see that faith-fueled obedience to Christ, even with suffering, is really the mark of the Christian life. It's the kind of thing that, that set apart a Christian from a non-Christian, and it absolutely defines the, that modern missions movement that we're looking at this morning. But a few notes before we launch into this. First, we are focusing on the birth of modern missions, and I want to make it that clear because 
I don't want you to think that missions didn't start happening until 1800. Uh, that's not the case at all. Um, there throughout the early church, right? Obviously the apostles were missionaries first off. Um, they set up people who went out and were missionaries. So m the mission work has been happening since the Great Commission happened, since Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit. Like great missionary work has been going on. So this isn't like a brand new thing. But specifically, we're going to be focusing on this period of like the late 1700s through the early 1900s because, for one, it kind of coincides with American mission work, which is kind of, you know, where we're coming from as a church, um, but also because it was kind of a resurgence of a huge emphasis on global mission work. And we're also not looking at like evangelistic work. I want to make a difference between evangelism and missions. Um, they both are sharing the gospel, but missions work specifically is bringing the gospel across um, ethnic or linguistic language or cultural barriers to people who haven't heard the gospel before. Evangelism is what we ought to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis within our culture, within our language, within um, our circles, we ought to be proclaiming the gospel. That's evangelism. Missions is doing that across a barrier. Um, and so we're going to be looking at this, and it's, the reason why is because this is like a huge part of the modern kind of evangelical Christian world. Um, mission work has kind of defined evangelical Christianity for the past two centuries, really. And really, it all started with this shoemaker named William Carey. And if you may have heard of William Carey before. He's often called the father of the modern missions movement, um, and that's probably not an understatement. Um, he did do a lot to, to change it. We're going to talk a little bit about him. Um, he was born in England in 1761. Uh, he was born to a really kind of a poor family, but uh, he was a brilliant kid, brilliant guy. Uh, from an early age, he had showed a great talent for languages especially, his dad was a schoolmaster, and he picked up a Latin book when he was six and taught himself uh, Latin at the age of six. Um, then he got really into plants and was really into botany and wanted to go study that at university, but since his parents were so poor, they couldn't afford to send him to school. Um, and so instead of doing that, when he was 14, he had only had like a grammar school education, um, at 14, he started working as a cobbler, a cobbler's apprentice. So he was just fixing shoes, making shoes all day. Um, after his conversion, though, he also, he continued cobbling, but he um, became a particular Baptist, as it was called at the time. Uh, and then he went on and he, like, pastored a, a church in Northamptonshire. He taught at a school in the, in the town. Um, and he was always reading. He was a voracious reader. Any book he could get his hands on, he would read. Um, the story is told that he would, while he was building shoes, he would have a book propped up there, and he would just be reading while he's making shoes. Um, and over the course of, of that time that he's working, before he turned 30 years old, he had taught himself Dutch, French, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Didn't go to college, but was able to, to learn those languages anyway. So no excuse, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, but he recounts that he read two books specifically as a young man, which really impacted uh, his future, impacted his worldview, um, the way that he kind of approached life. And those two books were the biography of James Cook. Um, and he, you may have heard of him before. He's a great British explorer. Specifically, he's known probably, he has some islands named after him, the Cook Islands. Yeah. He's also had a huge expedition that he went to Antarctica. He discovered Australia. There were people there, so he didn't really discover it, but he discovered it in terms of like the Western world knowing it was there. Um, so 
So Carrie's reading this book about adventure, about expedition, about discovering foreign lands. Um, but he also read this other book um, written by Jonathan Edwards, which is the account of the life of the Reverend David Brainerd, um, who was a missionary in the American colonies. And he came specifically to send the gospel, bring the gospel to Native Americans uh, here in the New World. So he's reading these books, they're kind of shaping his mind, um, and he's also preaching and teaching, uh, he's reading the Bible a lot, and as he's reading through Matthew 28, uh, which is the Great Commission, he becomes convinced that like this Great Commission that Jesus gave to his apostles didn't stop with them, it was supposed to be for us too. It's binding on us as believers now, in our day, today, and oddly enough, that wasn't exactly a common thought at the time. And he's like, there's a lot of people out there who aren't hearing the gospel. People all over the world who don't know. We know that there's these countries that are being discovered all the time. And they don't, they don't know who Jesus is. We got to fix this. And so in 1792, he published a book to try to help with this. Um, it was his thoughts on missions kind of with a plan to reach the nations. How can we do this? How can we go and bring the gospel to these guys? The book was called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversions of the Heathen. I don't know why people like had to make really long titles. You're going to see that's a common thing. These people in the 1700s, they didn't know how to write short stuff. But I want you to focus in on two words there. So an inquiry into the obligations, obligations one word, to use means for the conversion of the heathen, right? So he points out in this, in this book, we're obligated. We ought to be going and preaching the gospel. And then here's the way we can do it. He provides means. He's like, here's some, here's some ways that we can go about actually accomplishing this. Here's a quote um, from the kind of the introduction of his book. He says, I shall inquire whether the commission given by our Lord to his disciples be not still binding on us. Take a short view of human former undertakings. Give some account of the present state of the world. Consider the practicability of doing something more than is done <laughs> and the duty of the Christians in general in this matter. All right, and you think, okay, He's bringing the gospel. He's talking about taking the gospel to people who haven't heard it. This should be like, everybody's like, oh yeah, it's a good idea. Well, um, his book was a bombshell, really. It kind of got really strong responses. Now, from both sides, there were people who were like, wow, I hadn't thought of this. We need to be doing this. Yeah, he's right. But there are a lot of people who weren't so keen on his idea. In fact, uh, after it was published, he was given the opportunity to speak at a, at a pastor's, pastor's conference, and while he's speaking on this book, he's talking about this, this goal of going and preaching the gospel across the world, uh, one man stood up and said this, sit down, Mr. Carey, if God wanted the heathens of India to be saved, he would do it himself. He wouldn't ask you for advice. So, there were naysayers, for sure, but others were very much convinced by Carey's argument, and they were convinced that he had a good plan to go and, and do this work. And so later that year, in 1792, in October, uh, there was a group of 14 Baptist ministers who got together, William Carey included. There was also maybe a few names you've heard of, Andrew Fuller, William Stoughton, John Ryland, or some of the guys who did this. Um, they formed what was called the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. Again, like, come on, guys. But later, hey, later they renamed that to the Baptist Missionary Society. There you go. Like, that's, there, that's a good name. So they fixed it. Then, um, just a year later, in 1793, um, they commissioned their first missionary, um, which was William Carey. And he left England for India to go and bring the gospel to them. And he would never go home again. Um, he died in 1834. 
in India and worked there for 41 years without a furlough, no break, no time off, uh, 41 years on mission in India. And in that time, uh, he was preaching, he was teaching, but a huge part of his work was translating the Bible. Um, he translated it into many languages, uh, Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Asmasis, Sanskrit, uh, also completed partial translations into 29 other languages and dialects, total of, I think, 34 that he worked in. Crazy thing with, these, with some of these, uh, they, some of these dialects didn't have a written form. They were just spoken. So he built the written language, like made it, then wrote a dictionary for it, and then translated the Bible into it. So this guy, he just tells you his brilliance as far as languages go. Um, in 1818, he and his partners there in India established a college in India that was taught at by Indians, for Indians, for the study of Bible, arts, science. And then throughout his time in India, he also helped start 100 schools for kids. Um, he set up 19 different missionary stations in India so that when missionaries did come, they would have a place to kind of have a home base. Um, he established the Agricultural Society of India. Uh, he founded the first Indian newspaper, uh, so they didn't have to read, you know, British news. Uh, he developed a library system for books that were in Indian languages. Uh, he started a new banking system for Indian peoples because the Dutch and the English banking systems were like had 70% interest rates and they were really gouging people. And so he's like, hey, let's let's have your own bank. And by the time he died, Kerry was able to see um, over 700 converts to Christianity. But it was not all roses during his time. Um, in India, he faced like incredible difficulty and suffering, um, huge periods of depression, loneliness, uh, you know, times of like, what am I doing here? Should I even be here? Why did God do this? There's no point. He buried three children on the mission field. Um, the death of one of his sons was so traumatic for his wife that she basically went insane. Um, he had friends who were saying, hey, we should just put her in an asylum. She, she needs help. Um, ultimately, she passed away. Then he remarried, and his second wife died a few years later. Uh, he himself faced constant illness. He had malaria multiple times, diphtheria. Uh, at one point, uh, the print shop where they had their printing press, the books that they had finished that were ready to go out, all the manuscripts of translating projects that he was working on at the time, it burned to the ground, lost everything. And on top of all that, um, he spent seven whole years in India before he ever saw a first convert. Seven years of working tirelessly before anybody came to the faith. But with all that, so just kind of think about that, all the work he did, the suffering he endured, three years before he died, he wrote a letter to one of his sons back in, in England. He says this, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared until now, and am still retained in his work, and I trust I am received into the divine favor through him. I wish to be more entirely devoted to his service, more completely sanctified and more habitually exercising all the Christian graces and bringing forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise and honor of that Savior who gave his life a sacrifice for sin. That doesn't convict you. <laughs> When he died um, in June of 1834, they made a simple tombstone and on it were inscribed these words. 
A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. His was a life spent absolutely for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. Um, and his life, his writings, writings about him, inspired a generation of missionaries, not only from England, but also from the United States, which is where we're going next. So if William Carey is the father of the modern missions movement as a whole, Adoniram Judson is the father of uh, the American Baptist missionary movement, no doubt about it. Um, and Adoniram has a good name because you can't help but to say it and sound like you're from the country, which is funny because he wasn't. He was, uh, he was from Massachusetts, but Adoniram just sounds real good in Southern. It's not, sorry. Don't want to make you guys sad. Um, I want to be clear, though. Missionary work had already been going on for a long time in the U.S. He's not new. Um, John Eliot, for example, was a Puritan missionary in the 1600s who uh, brought the gospel to Native Americans in Massachusetts. Um, There's also David Brainerd we've already mentioned. Uh, he was working with the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. Um, that was in the early 1700s. Uh, you have George Lyle, who was a former slave. Uh, he brought the gospel to Jamaica. Um, he planted a church there that he saw like 500 um, converts in his first eight years. Um, he himself, actually, from that church, they sent out missionaries to Canada uh, and back to Africa. Um, there was a lot of mission work going on. Uh, in fact, I mean, you could kind of say, in some sense, all of the Americas at this time, right? We're talking about 1600s, 1700s. All of the Americas is really a mission field, basically. But there's a difference between what those people were doing and what um, guys like Adoniram Judson kind of did. Two, two main differences. First, the missionary efforts previously really lacked any formal organizational structure. So all the missionary work that had been done up until that time was just men who decided, we need to, I need to do this, and they would go do it, right? No one was sending them. No one was helping them. They just went and started preaching the gospel to people. Second, most of the stuff that had happened previously was primarily like domestic. It was local. It was for the indigenous people of the Americas or for enslaved Africans or for people from Europe who were settling new in the new world. But with William Carey, um, all of a sudden there was this huge awareness of the need for the gospel to go all over the place, um, all over the world. And so um, we kind of see this the American evangelical people, they go, okay, we need to be doing this in the early 1800s. Um, and this brought forth the establishment of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Um, and in 1810, this was established by some, some basically some students from Williams College who was like, we need to get the gospel around the world better. <laughs> um, and so they established this, and Adoniram Judson was one of them. Um, and the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions was a non-denominational organization. So it wasn't Baptist, um, and they were commissioning missionaries from multiple different places, different kinds of churches, congregational churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed, they did it all. Um, but with that groundwork that had been laid by Carey, and with the excitement that was kind of being generated by people reading books about him and, and from him, um, along with means provided by organizations like this, the USA was able to really start kind of launching missionaries to foreign lands. And one of the first ones to do that was Adoniram Judson. He was born uh, in August of 1788. Uh, his dad was a congregational minister. Um, he was raised in like a very godly, pious, like structured home. Um, you know, nightly devotions, morning devotions. His dad's a minister. So the Bible is just kind of the, the song of the home. Um, 
And he was also a really brilliant guy. He went to Brown University at age 17, but it's a, a common story you may have heard before. Uh, he went to college and started hanging out with this guy named Jacob Eames. And Jacob Eames was a deist. And deism is basically this idea that, that God created the world, but then he just kind of stepped back and, and watch it go, right? This is a kind of clockmaker argument is what you call it, where he winds up the clock and lets it go. And God's not interacting with the world anymore. He's not revealing anything to us now. So we would say, they, deists would say that the Bible is not really revealing God. It may be, have truths about God in it, but it's, it's not his word. Um, Jesus wasn't anything special. I mean, he was maybe special, but he wasn't sent by God because God isn't working in the world now. God just made it and left it. So deism is not Christianity. It believes in God and would say it's kind of the God of Judeo-Christian God, but it's not Christianity. Anyway, so uh, he starts hanging out with this guy who's a deist, and uh, he embraces kind of this world of skepticism and starts asking a lot of questions and being really doubtful and eventually decides that he's a deist too. Um, but he um, was really brilliant, um, graduated valedictorian of his class, and decided to go back home to be a teacher. Um, but he realized that his parents would not be very happy if they knew that he had rejected Christianity and become a deist, so he just kept that a secret from them. But still, he's around the home, you know, and his dad's praying all the time, uh, his dad's preaching, uh, and it kind of got to him and started bugging him. And so he decided he needed to get away from this backwoods place and go to New York City and become a playwright uh, and, and do great things uh, in New York and go big. Um, and at the time, as opposed to now, New York City was kind of known as a pit of immorality. It was this, this really, you know, like, oh, Christians don't go there. So when he told his parents that he was planning to go, they were like, no, that's crazy. What are you talking about? Why would you do that? I mean, think about your calling as a, as a believer. Like, think about your devotion to the Lord, what, we, what we've, you know, trained you in, what you know. And he just exploded on them and, and denounced the faith, um, left them alone, demanded his inheritance in the form of a horse, and took off for New York. And um, once he got there, all his hopes kind of came crashing down. It didn't really work out for him. He tried for a few months, couldn't really figure out a way to, to make it happen, and so, kind of like the prodigal son, uh, he decided he needed to go back home. And on his way home from New York City, um, God did a crazy work in his life. Um, he goes to an inn where he's going to be staying uh, the night, and there's only one room available. And it's right next to this room where there's this man who's very, very ill. And the innkeeper's like, hey, listen, we only have one room. It's next to this room. This guy's on his deathbed. Um, it probably won't be a very pleasant night, basically. But Judson's like, hey, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about death. No big deal. Not going to bother me. I'll get a good night's sleep uh, no, anyway. But all night long, he couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned. Um, he could hear every whisper in the room next door. He could hear the footsteps coming and going. He could hear the moans and cries of the man who was dying. Eventually, though, he does fall asleep and woke up kind of like laughing about it, how silly he was to have been so bothered by that last night. So he goes down to settle the bill, and the manager informs him that the man in the room next door had died that night. Um, and Judson asks, well, did you, did you know him? The manager said, yes, yes, he was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames, which was Judson's good friend who taught him about deism. And so that really shook, shook Judson. And he went back home, 
renounced his deism, and from that point onward, like his whole life was changed. He enrolled in um, Andover Theological Seminary. Uh, he became a, a believer and decided, I gotta go be a missionary. How did he do that? Well, um, he's studying in seminary. He reads some stuff about William Carey, um, who had brought the gospel to, to Serampore, India, and had begun translating the Bible into Bengali. And as he's studying kind of geography and learning about the nations of the East, he decided uh, he needed to go to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, kind of northwest of Thailand, if uh, you're kind of picturing the Asian continent there in your brain. And this at the time was a completely unreached, entirely Buddhist country. And so in, uh, in 1813, they officially set out. Uh, I think they set out in 1812, arrived in 1813 in Burma. Uh, and the Judsons, he and his wife uh, went there and they spent 10 years basically learning the language because they didn't know it yet. <laughs> so they went before they knew it. Uh, they learned the language and were just sharing the gospel any chance they got. During that time, he also started kind of developing a grammar and a dictionary for the Burmese language, which didn't really exist at the time. Um, and he started translating the New Testament into Burmese. Um, he was constantly sharing the gospel. He printed a lot of tracts uh, in Burmese, handed them out to everybody. But one of the big things he did that was interesting was he held public discourses. Um, and this was a Burmese religious kind of tradition where they would have these tents uh, and they would just be an open tent and a teacher, a religious teacher, at this time, you know, a Buddhist teacher, they would sit on the ground in this tent and invite people who are coming by to, to come in and, and talk with them. And they would talk about enlightenment and, and how, to, how to become enlightened and the teachings of the Buddha. Um, well, he replicated that, but he would sit there and talk to them about the gospel instead. And um, on, in June of 1819, Six years into his ministry, he baptized his first convert. You may notice a trend there. Um, Kerry took seven years. Um, Adoniram took six. And that should show you that missionary work is not a, a snap of the finger kind of thing. It's not something that we get to just go and like, well, I'm going to go for a week and, and preach the gospel and, you know, see 10 people converted. Like these guys worked for years and years before they got they got to see the fruit of their labors. And some of them didn't get to see much fruit at all before they died. Um, it was not uncommon to see very little um, happen in those first few years. I should encourage us. I hope that does. But everything kind of changed in 1824 because um, war broke out between England and Burma. And here's this guy from America in Burma. And so the Burmese government was kind of like, hey, you look British, you're probably a spy. Um, and so he was thrown into a prison. Um, they called it a death prison. It was basically this, this hut that had no ventilation, um, and they would just jam 50, 60 prisoners in this little room, um, wrap them up in chains, and leave them there. And at nighttime, they would like lay their legs up on the wall, like have these bamboo shafts that held their legs up, so that only their shoulders were resting on the ground to keep them from escaping while they slept. Keep them from sleeping while they slept, too, probably. Um, they would just kind of throw some rice in the room. Um, there was constantly sickness beatings, whatever else. And so Judson was bad off. I mean, he was really, really down, really, um, really ill and, and, and on, his, on the way out. And on top of that, um, his wife, Anne, she was working, doing everything she could to get him out. I mean, she, she pulled on every friendship she had, everybody that she knew in the area. She wrote a, a letter to the queen, but there was like nothing that could happen. 
And there was another problem. She was pregnant, and she had a baby in January of 1825. And so basically, she has this baby while her husband's in prison, and she could come up to the prison and see him through the fence and talk to him for a minute. Um, and you can imagine, like, for him, he, he's in prison. His wife's had a baby. All he can do is see her through, through a fence. Um, and as time wore on, um, the war got worse. Um, economic effects began to kind of take hold in Burma. Food prices were crazy high. Um, and one day, um, she comes to the prison with the baby and says, and tells Adoniram, basically, we don't have any food left. Um, there's nothing to eat. Um, and then she got ill. She, I think, I don't know if it was smallpox, actually. Um, may have been. I can't remember. And Adoniram got news that Anne was, was dying. She was really, really sick. And so the prison warden was like, well, I have some pity on you. So he let, he let Judson leave, not to go be with his wife. He let Judson leave so that he could go take his baby around the village and ask women in the village to take care of the baby since, since his wife was dying. And he was basically driven mad. I mean, the suffering made him lose it. Um, his daughter was starving. His wife was nearly dead. All of his translation work had been lost. Um, and he was, he was dead any day. Um, but somehow, God sustained him, sustained his faith. Um, and his baby ended up surviving. So did Anne. Well, for a time, sad. Um, sorry. Uh, in December, he was released from prison, December of 1825 but he had been in there for over a year and a half. Um, for the next 25 years, he went right back to work. Didn't uh, say, I'm gonna go back home now. Didn't say, well, that's enough for me. Uh, I think that God's shown me that I don't need to be here anymore. He went right back to work. Um, but while Anne had survived his imprisonment and recovered, she actually got spinal meningitis um, less than a year after he was released and, and died. Um, and his daughter followed suit pretty shortly after that. But before her death, his wife Anne had written this book uh, called A Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. Again, like, come on, people with these titles. Um, and it was published by this publishing company that was started by Luther Rice. We're going to talk about him in just a second. Um, and the whole point of this was to kind of bring attention to world missions and what was happening. Shortly after her death as well, this guy named James Knowles wrote a memoir of Miss Anne H. Judson, the late missionary to Burma. Um, and together, those two books kind of went through a bunch of different printings. They were bestsellers in America. They inspired a bunch of people to, to become missionaries uh, as well. But as fruitful as their work in Burma was, uh, this is really interesting. One author I read speculated that it, it could be argued that foreign missions had an even greater impact in saving souls in America as thousands of men and women read the stories about Ann Judson vowing to follow in their footsteps. So, good work either way. Now, let's talk for just a second about Luther Rice. He was, um, he was a guy, originally he had left for Burma with the Judsons, but uh, on the way, he and Adoniram were kind of reading and studying. Um, they knew that they were going to be working with William Carey a little bit when they first arrived uh, to help kind of get set up, and they knew he was a Baptist, and so they were like, well, we need to have a better understanding of kind of Baptist distinctives. What's, what are the doctrines here that make them specific? Because, you know, we want to be able to converse with him and not just have fights or whatever. Um, they were Congregationalists, kind of in the Edward, um, Edwards kind of lane, and so they, they believed in infant baptism. 
as they studied, they became convinced that believer's baptism was correct, so they became Baptist. But they were being sent at the time to go work with a bunch of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, and Luther Rice thought, we need support from Baptist churches specifically. So he went right back uh, home uh, and started raising support for the Judson's mission from Baptist churches. And then in 1814, he teamed up with uh, William Stoughton and they organized what was called the Triennial Convention. Um, and that he's one of the guys who um, worked with Carey to found the Baptist Missionary Society. So he again came to the U.S. and he's working with Luther Rice now. So this thing, the Triennial Convention, it's called that because it happened every three years. Basically, their goal was to organize Baptists on a more national scale. At the time, it was more like local associations, and they said, we need to have a kind of a bigger picture uh, organization to think about this um, more broadly. Primarily, though, Luther Rice was doing it because he wanted to send money to the Judsons. Uh, it just so happened that he also was able to help a lot of other missionaries, too. But Luther Rice and other Baptists kind of realized that if their missions were to be successful, um, they needed some educated missionaries. And so in 1817, um, the Triennial Convention chose William Stoughton to organize uh, a school for theology, a seminary in Philadelphia. Um, and their goal was to kind of like provide a really classical, rich education for prospective pastors and missionaries. And um, one of the crazy things is they... As, hold on. I'll get to that in just a second. But they also thought um, if missionaries were going to be able to develop dictionaries like they needed to, um, work from the Hebrew and the Greek into a new language that they're you know translating into, then they would really need a thorough, like, rich education uh, in language. And so in the fall of 1821, they also... Uh, moved the school to Washington, D.C., renamed it Columbian College. Nowadays, it's known as George Washington University. Um, but listen to this. At the time then, they, they changed the admission requirements to Columbian College. Among other things, you had to be able to translate correctly and with facility Caesar's commentaries, Virgil's Seleust, uh, Cicero's select orations, uh, and the Gospels from the Greek. The others were from Latin. That was in order to get into the school. Uh, he also, Luther Rice, opened the Mission Press. We mentioned that a minute ago uh, there in Washington and published a lot of books uh, and periodicals and things like that. Uh, a monthly publication put out by William Stoughton. And the biggest thing was Ann Judson's book, a Particular Relation of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. He published that and it was a huge bestseller. All right, last one we're going to talk about real quick, um, is Lottie Moon. And this is, hopefully, this is one you've heard of, especially if you come from a Baptist background. I'm sure you've heard the Lottie Moon name before. And I want to bring this up because Lottie Moon is kind of unique in the fact that she was a single female who went and did this missionary work. It, she wasn't the only one. There was also a Presbyterian missionary whose name eludes me at this moment who did some work with uh, Native Americans here in the, in the, in the U.S. Um, but Lottie Moon is kind of a unique figure. She was born uh, in December of 1840 in Virginia. Um, she was a really tiny lady. Uh, when she was an adult, she was only like four feet, three inches tall. But she became a very mighty missionary. She spent 39 years serving China. 
Um, as a kid, her mom read scriptures to her, but one of the things that really changed her life was she actually read the biography of Ann Judson, um, and that shaped her her path and made her go, that's something that's interesting to me. Um, at age 14, um, she went to what was called the uh, Albemarle, Albemarle Female Institute, um, and by the time she graduated from there, she had a handle on Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish. If we have learned anything from this, uh, it's that we in modern times are grossly undereducated in languages. Um, while attending the First Baptist Church uh, in Charlottesville, she became a, a Christian, uh, and the pastor there encouraged her to pursue the life of a missionary. But in those days, it was pretty much unheard of for a single woman to go and be a missionary. Still, uh, on July 7th of 1873, the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, now known as the International Mission Board, we've heard of that, they appointed Lottie to go to China, Tingchao, China. And her goal was kind of like direct evangelism. She recognized that a lot of times, especially uh, women in missionary worlds, were kind of like they would go and, and kind of be teaching in a school maybe, or their primary role would be just taking care of the children for their husband who was doing missionary work. But she said, uh, I want to go and just talk to people and tell them about Jesus. Um, and... But still, she recognized the value of having some, some roots there. So in 1878, she opened up a girls' boarding school. Um, she learned local dialects, traveled extensively throughout China, um, went to a bunch of different villages, and just shared the gospel everywhere. Just was um, unashamed to, to bring up the gospel to everyone. And she wrote a bunch of letters. This is one of the things that we have a lot, um, a lot of stuff from her. She wrote a bunch of letters back to the U.S., um, with the goal of raising awareness and saying like, hey, we need more missionaries. For example, on November 1st of 1873, this is a letter she wrote, what we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers owe so few. I think your idea is correct that a man should ask himself, not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. But... Um, the soil was rough, um, and she didn't see much fruit, especially early on. Um, but she recognized that her job primarily was to sow seeds. She really thought of herself as a seed sower. Um, and she wrote this uh, in, in 1875. What we find missionaries can do in the way of preaching the gospel, even in the immediate neighborhood of this city, is but a thousandth part of the drop in the bucket compared with what it should be done. I do not pretend to aver that there is any spiritual interest among the people. They literally sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The burden of our words to them is the folly and sin of idol worship. We are but doing pioneer work. We're breaking up the soil in which we believe others shall be able to sow a bountiful crop. But as in the natural soil, four or five laborers cannot possibly cultivate a radius of 20 miles. So cannot we, a mission of five people, do more than make a beginning of what should be done. So she's calling on people and saying, we need more workers. And just like the others we've talked about, she bore many sacrifices um, during her missionary endeavors. One of those was that she never married. Um, and you know, we know some people are called to a life of singleness. She didn't necessarily believe that, but she was once asked by one of her nieces, uh, Aunt Lottie, have you ever been in love? And she said, yes, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the results. Um, she died at the age of 72. Um, she had been really, really ill leading up to her death. 
Um, but when she, the year that she died, 2,358 persons were baptized um, in the field of service that she was in in China. That was doubling the Baptist population in, in that area of China on that day. And today, on any given Sunday, this is a quote, on any given Sunday, there are now more Protestants in church in China than in all of Europe. In fact, um, even according to the most conservative estimates, um, there is more than one million Chinese people converted to Christianity every single year. So you can see, she cultivated some soil. It's producing fruit. And you probably know of her from the annual Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I've heard her name many times growing up in a Baptist church. Um, and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, since it was established, has raised over $3 billion to support foreign missions. So what do we do with all this? We talked about these missionaries. We are evangelical Christians. Um, we're kind of following in the footsteps of these people. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Lottie Moon. We understand that the Great Commission is our commission. We're called to be those kind of missionaries. And that means that we ought to be supporting mission work. For some of us, that means giving. That means learning. That means connecting with missionaries. That means supporting them. That means praying for them. For others of us, that means we should go. Lottie Moon said it. <laughs> the default Christian stance shouldn't be, should I go be a missionary? The default Christian stance should be, should I stay here? So many people, we all have this tendency to build our lives around maximizing our comfort, minimizing our pain, doing everything we can to just live a happy little comfortable life. But as you can see, these people didn't live that way. They didn't enjoy suffering. They weren't excited about it, but they endured it because they recognized that they were doing a work that was way bigger than them. And they were looking like to an eternal reward, something that wasn't temporary. They weren't looking for the here and now. They weren't looking for the thrill of seeing, you know, masses of people come to Christ. Um, they were planting seeds. They were tilling soil. They were preparing for the work of the future missionaries who would go and bring the gospel again and again and again because that's what it takes. So I hope that inspires you this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these missionaries, for the inspiration that they are to us of selfless a selfless drive to bring the gospel to those who need to hear it all over the world. I pray that you will give us conviction if we are not supporting missionaries as we should, whether that be financially, whether that be in prayer, help us see how we can do that better. And if we are called to go, I pray that you'll give us the courage to, to do that. Help us be obedient to your calling. In Jesus' name, amen.